0: Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetics industry. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is my co-host and founder of the show, Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry.
1: Hey, Valerie. Good to have you back.
0: Happy New Year! Indeed. Well, we have an exciting program today, as usual. We'll cover, of course, beauty science news, and then we will answer your questions about aluminum hydroxide in topical products, Ooh. whether lip scrubs are worthwhile or not.
1: My lips are already dry.
0: <laughs> it is winter in Chicago. The Indeed. environmental impact of cosmetics, and mm-hmm. what are the differences between bentonite and charcoal in a facial mask? However, we haven't had a chance to catch up yet this year. How's it been going?
1: Oh, things are going good. The weather has been really screwy here in Chicago. It's finally winter time. but uh, I had a great new year. I'm off to, uh, off on track with all of my goals. Uh, I've already read five books this year, so
0: <laughs> Wow, that's in- incredibly impressive. I-, I have a goal of one per week. How many do you have?
1: I was going to go one per week, but uh, last year I read 50 or 70 books, so that's sort of my goal, I guess.
0: Oh, very cool.
1: So uh, you were off at the Consumer Electronics Show. Do you see any good beauty stuff there?
0: Yeah, I was actually, uh, last week, being the first work week of the new year, I already hit up two states for work. A lot of business travel already. I was supposed to have another trip next week, but I canceled it uh, just because it that's a bit much. Uh, but at the Consumer Electronics Show... It is a crazy show. If you ever have a chance to go, maybe we'll cover live with the Beauty Brains next year. It's pretty cool. Basically, if it's digital software electronics, uh, it's covered. The show is ginormous and it does take a little bit of pre-planning to make sure that you're in the correct areas that you want to go, uh, because quite frankly, it is exhausting. Even if you you know, you have the energy, just like being in that environment with the lights of the show. Yeah. And yeah everything's like flashing and digital. Uh it's it's pretty crazy. But yeah, I had a good time.
1: Well, were there any beauty devices there? That's where like P&G rolls out some stuff there and uh, kind of the big guys, but... uh,
0: Yeah, a lot of people put out press releases typically to make sure that you're aware of it before you go to the show. Uh, Some of the big players like L'Oreal and Neutrogena don't want to really show it to the public. They have these private suites for their devices, but other companies are out on the show floor, which is... Uh, pretty cool. What's interesting about these shows is as I'm, I'm looking at all the, we'll call them inventions or technologies that are available, I wondered how many actually get to the market and how many of these are just like concepts. I mean, there's a, I've been going for a few years now and there's a couple beauty devices I've seen over the years that never really made it to market, but it just kind of created a buzz at the show.
1: I did see a recent article about electronics and how in In China, they're doing really well with the electronic devices for beauty, but in the United States, they just haven't seemed to take off. And I I don't know, I guess people have decided that there isn't enough benefit to spend a couple hundred dollars on some device for beauty products where, where they could actually get a cream or lotion where they might spend that.
0: Yeah, I mean, my challenge is technology just changes so fast. It's hard to keep up with alone with just cell phones and computers adding beauty devices to is just another complexity i don't need personally
1: i remember early on in the beauty brains we were given one of these Clarisonic brushes and, uh-huh. yeah, and you know it seemed good enough but i barely washed my face anyways <laughs> oh <laughs> well, i wa- love one oh my wife loved it
0: so oh good like, yeah, yeah cool well let's get on to our beauty science news
1: sounds good <laughs>
0: you see this week?
1: You know, one of the topics that I keep track of is this whole issue of talc. And it was interesting to me because I saw a study published or a story published by NPR that said uh, this study found that talc was not likely a risk for ovarian cancer. And it got me wondering, are all the people who have won lawsuits against J&J going to now give that money back? Right? Oh,
0: of course not. <laughs>
1: I mean, actually, they haven't gotten any money. Uh, J&J is still going through ap- the appeals process, so none of that has really shaken out. But this is not the first time where a technology has been found to be harming consumers in the courts. And then later on, science has demonstrated that you know it probably wasn't this technology. I'm thinking of the uh, silicone breast implant technology. Uh, that happened in the mid-1990s that actually caused Dow Corning after setting up this billion-dollar settlement uh, to go bankrupt. And then later on, the science demonstrated that, in fact, there was no uh, links between silicone breast implants and uh, poor health. And that's kind of the case here with the talc powder. This was a study of over 200,000 people. It's 250,000 people. It was a cohort study which essentially they took data from people who they had asked about talc uh, many years ago. And then in follow-ups, they looked at how many people had developed ovarian cancer mm-hmm. and the rate of use. And what they found was that um, the the raw numbers are ovarian cancer incidence was 61 cases out of 100,000 person years uh, among users and 55 cases per hundred thousand person user among never users which essentially they found there was not a statistically significant linkage between talc and ovarian cancer and so I guess all those lawsuits will be thrown out now <laughs> unlikely but that's what the science says at the moment
0: well we'll see if uh, this study gets brought up in the appeals
1: I'm sure the people over at J&J will be doing that. <laughs>
0: Well, I saw a an announcement about a brand launching a luxury skincare collection, and it is an Australian brand. And their featured ingredient is an extract from horse placenta.
1: Oh joy, <laughs> my oh my!
0: <laughs> yeah, so I, I had a little per- Instagram. On my personal Instagram account, I had a little thing going on like, hey, would you consider using a product? And the uh, response was overwhelmingly no. Although I did have a couple people say, well, if it really, really did a miracle, I, I would consider it. Uh, they messaged me personally.
1: You know, that's what I think about a lot of beauty product things, though. If something worked, no matter how disgusting it is, I think people would try it. I mean, if it really worked.
0: If it really worked, yeah. Right. So
1: rarely we- does that ever, is that ever the case, though?
0: Aside from the fact it's placenta, and that's just strange, and the fact that it's horse placenta, which in terms of culinary, in a majority of the world, uh, eating horses taboo. I know it's widely accepted um, in many cultures, um, including in Northern Italy, they like to eat horse. But uh, I just want to talk about the challenge that goes with ingredients derived from animal protein, fat, tallow, placenta, because uh, we don't see a lot of it, and... It's not that this company has discovered something new. I think they're really taking a risk by using uh, this ingredient. And that risk is transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, also known as TSE, when speaking about animals in general, or BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, when we're talking about cattle-derived ingredients. And those are basically uh, transmissible diseases coming from animal products.
1: Yeah, those are the old prion diseases. Prions are just misfolding proteins, and it was some area of interest of mine some many years ago.
0: Exactly, yeah. So there are lots of restrictions on using animal-derived ingredients, not just in cosmetics, but in pharma and other applications. The animals can only come from certain countries. They have to have been processed in certain registered facilities that aren't allowed to process other things from other countries. There have to be permits, permits for the importers, and... Even with all of that, certain materials related to certain blood tissues are just not allowed. And it's not just cattle. It also goes for deer, sheep, goats, etc. However, there is an exception to those rules that the article that's imported is used in cosmetics. Now, when raw material suppliers work with animal byproducts for use in cosmetic ingredient synthesis, they have to ensure that the tissue they're working with is low risk for any of these TSEs and that the reactions used in the raw material synthesis will eliminate anything present. So for the most part, most of these raw material suppliers aren't going to use blood-based tissue, which is where these risk factors live. Uh, They're going to use other components of the animal, such as tallow or protein, so that the risk is extremely low. However, when you start getting into placentas and other tissues, like human placental enzymes, lipids, umbilical extracts, uh, it gets really risky from here on out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it was uh, actually in the mid-1990s when I had was just starting in the cosmetic industry where all that mad cow stuff came out. And what happened was uh, the industry got spooked, and that's when they started getting away from almost all animal-derived uh, ingredients.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not low risk to use animal-based ingredients. I mean, there are certain aspects, but when you start talking about the blood tissue, uh, there's huge potential for metabolic and endocrine activity. So the provider of the extract or the raw material that they started with, they have to be sure that there aren't any hormones or growth factors present since the safety of those items aren't known. And there are several complications that can happen in the human body. There's also danger inherent to using... Uh, these ingredients because they can transmit infectious agents. Uh, going back to that whole mad cow disease scare, um, that goes back to the TSC, BSC conversation. You can transfer these prions through, through the blood that you're using to work with the raw materials. And you have to do all this testing to ensure there's no pathogenic components in there. And even then you still have a risk.
1: And I'm not even sure how you determine a prion because a prion is it's a protein that can be folded normally one way, but it's folded a different way. So chemically, it's the same thing. It's just folded weird. So I'm not even sure if there's some sort of uh, test you could do or some assay you can do to determine is it a misfolded protein or is it the regular protein? That's why companies stay away from those kinds of ingredients.
0: Exactly. Because at the end of the day, too, the law is if if you're an importer of these types of raw materials, as the ingredient supplier, you have to accept responsibility and and be able to support that these ingredients are risk free and no reputable supplier, knowing the difficulty of testing, knowing the high risk of transmission of infectious um, agents is going to do that. They're just not going to risk their business on that. So lastly, thinking, okay, well, why placenta? Why use it despite all this risk? Um that's a great question. I have. I know it's an interesting story. It gets people talking. And it really is unlikely that any of these placenta based ingredients are more efficacious than any of the other bazillion ingredients we have to choose from on the market that don't come from blood tissue. For me personally, it's just not worth the risk.
1: I just think it's one of those ingredients that has some folklore nature to it. It's been around for a while. People, you know, whisper about it and say, oh, this is the really good stuff, even without any proof. But That's why I think it sort of stays around. The one thing I wanted to also mention is when when the industry went through that mad cow scare and they started getting away from animal products, it always surprised me to hear recently about people pushing for uh, vegan cosmetics. Because to me, cosmetics were pretty much already vegan anyway. So I don't see how it's any great new benefit. I know a lot of ingredients can be made from animal sources but it's for reasons like this and the difficulty in proving that there's not some sort of extra issue with the animal protein that companies just don't use them anymore
0: yeah well we did have a recall alert this week
1: oh let me play the recall alert music
0: Say Yes To recalls their Yes To Grapefruit Vitamin C Glow Boosting Unicorn Peel-Off Mask.
1: So apparently people are, what, having allergic reactions to unicorns?
0: Yeah, yeah. So there's recalls for lots of reasons, uh, some being microbial. That's usually the type we cover on the show. But this one is because a lot of people, including small children, uh, that apparently have really good skincare regimens, have been using so, yeah. this mask, and they've been uh, getting really bright red faces with burn-type marks on them, like sunburns.
1: Yeah, I saw the pictures that people were posting on Instagram. They they look pretty bad.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, typically brands, when they bring a product to market, they have to do some sort of especially if the product comes in contact with the skin uh they should be doing safety testing that's the responsibility of the brand i don't know if say yes to uh perform the HRIPT testing the repeat insult patch testing that a brand would typically do to see if there were any reactions to the product i don't know if they did that or not
1: you would hope they would they're a relatively larger brand uh you would and hope it's that the responsibility they would to. I, I think it's yeah. it's i think it's kind of crazy if they didn't I mean, yeah, you can find this brand in like Target and in bigger stores. So they're going to have to have done some safety testing. But if you look at their uh, ingredient list, it's not completely surprising to me that they're having some issues, particularly because they are using a grapefruit extract.
0: Yeah, it's extremely sensitizing on the skin. You do not want to have sun exposure with that.
1: I don't know why you would use that. I mean... Maybe if they were using it at a a really low level, it wouldn't matter. But if you use it at a high enough level to have some sort of effect, well, that could cause a problem.
0: Yeah, and these peel-off masks typically have low water content and higher levels of other ingredients that allow the the mask to congeal together and peel off. The second ingredient on their ingredient listing is ethyl alcohol, which may facilitate with penetration of these ingredients into the skin. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. I actually... Personally, don't enjoy the "say yes to" products. I've used; they have a charcoal sheet mask, which actually is a black non woven substrate. Uh, right. It also created a burning sensation on my face. This was about three years ago, but I have rosacea and can tend to be really sensitive to these types of products. So I chalked it up to that. But now I'm wondering if if there's something yeah. more to it. I mean, it wasn't just like that; my skin was red, but I remember it being burning hot, and I, I had to yeah. take it off and wash my face. Yeah. It,
1: Interesting. I mean, they have a few things. I know p- some people are sensitive to phenoxyethanol. That's in here. Then they have benzoate, limonene. Um, these are ingredients that are kind of known allergens. It's It seems strange to me that a company would put a face mask together that has known allergens in it. On the other hand, it's still going to be a small uh, number of people or a small percentage of the population that would react to this. And, but in this days and age of Instagram and everybody posting everything about their life even a, a few people could make it look really bad for a brand actually if you read their recall notice um, they uh, you know kudos to the brand for recalling it they didn't they wouldn't really they didn't really have to recall it of course they could have faced something like what happened with when where people posted a bunch of stuff about their hair falling out and when kind of didn't do anything about it and everybody went to the FDA about it <laughs> that caused them great problems say yes to has you know they're they're recalling the product which is smart in in my estimation Uh, but i'm not so sure how smart it was to use these known allergens in the first place
0: yeah one comment about phenoxyethanol phenoxyethanol is not bad in a lot of cases. There are different mm-hmm. grades of phenoxyethanol you can get. Phenoxyethanol can have something called free phenols in it and you want to make sure that as a brand you're buying a low phenol content version that can be less irritating. So, uh, don't freak out if you see phenoxyethanol on the label. Um, usually it's okay if the brand is buying a, a pretty pure version of it. But
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's right. Uh, I, I only I only mentioned phenoxyethanol because in my Formulating work. I know there's some like home use studies where consumers will report like a tingling or some sort of effect, yeah. and phenoxyethanol is one of the culprits in that.
0: Yeah, important to use high quality phenoxyethanol if you are a formulator and you're listening to the show. Indeed. And if
1: you have some of the uh if you have any allergy allergy to unicorns, make sure you return your say yes to grapefruit.
0: <laughs> Get unicorn. your money back.
1: <laughs> Glow boosting peel off mask. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Well, let's get to our beauty questions. Our first question is an audio question.
1: Hey, Beauty Brains. This is Jody calling from Los
0: Angeles. I'm a huge fan of your show. I have a quick question What is aluminum hydroxide? And if it is in a diaper rash cream, is that bad for your baby's skin? Thank you so much.
1: All right, aluminum hydroxide. What a fun ingredient. Uh, It is a synthetic ingredient, although it's not uh, organic. So it's uh, an inorganic material. And, And most of the inorganic stuff that we use in cosmetics actually is synthesized in the lab, even though some of it can be found out in nature. Well, aluminum hydroxide is actually an approved active ingredient to treat diaper rash. So if you go to the FDA monograph and look up the ingredients that scientists and product developers are allowed to use, ammonia aluminum hydroxide is one of those active ingredients. So the fact that it's in the monograph, that means it has been approved as safe and effective up to a level of 5%, which is what was stated in the monograph so the product has gone through medical trials. It's been proven safe. It's been proven effective. And for that reason, it's not something that I think people really need to worry about the safety of. As far as what it does, it has an absorbent effect and that is, that's how it works. Um, and it also has no known skin toxicity, so they're, they're really, as far as is this something you should worry about, no, it's not, it's not something to worry about. It's a, a safe and effective ingredient.
0: Yeah, aluminum hydroxide, I think people may be confusing it with sodium hydroxide, something that could be considered caustic if you were to use it neat. Aluminum hydroxide is actually a physical particle. Uh, It's not like a solution where, you know, where you're in the movie Batman and you get thrown into it and your skin starts to dissolve and stuff like that. Uh, It's actually a a pretty inert powder.
1: Yeah, and has that absorbent property. Now, you know, I think one of the reasons that people worried about aluminum hydroxide is just because of the word aluminum. Somehow in the world, people have become afraid of aluminum and you know there's no reason to be scared but unfortunately the fear marketers have made people afraid of anything that says aluminum especially things like antiperspirants and other products applied to skin since this is a thing for baby diaper rash i can understand like a new parent uh, who would be afraid of everything and when you have marketers telling you to stay away from aluminum products I can see how that might be uh, worrisome to new parents. But this is a drug active that has been safety tested through medical trials and it's been determined to be safe and effective. So I don't know how you convince people otherwise, but as far as the science says, aluminum hydroxide is a perfectly safe ingredient to use.
0: Well, thanks so much, Jody, for asking a great question. Thanks, for Perry, for answering. Our second question comes from Ben Alamode from Instagram,
1: which reminds me I'm I would love to have some ice cream today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds delicious, huh? Yeah, it does. <laughs> all right, Ben's question. I feel that lip scrubs and masks are all the rage these days, and I'm not sure if they have long-term benefits. I know that a scrub may make lips feel soft in the moment, but will they make my lips feel and look younger over time? Which ingredients are good for these scrubs and moisturizers to have?
1: Well, that's a it's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, the whole notion of exfoliation, does that really improve your skin over the long term? Mm, Yeah, I don't know. I think the data is out on that. But how about the lip scrubs?
0: Well, I feel... Well, this is a great question. Just because uh, lip scrubs and masks, they are kind of expensive products when you think about it. And do you really need them? They seem kind of uh, extra, right? Uh, Uh I think that... Lip scrubs are great in the short term when your lips do get a little ruffle looking and you're starting to feel these little extra skin pieces pick up. I know that I really enjoy using lip scrubs, not necessarily as a preventative mechanism, like I would exfoliate my skin once per month uh, during a facial uh, to keep my skin turning over. I, I don't do it that way. I really only uh, use lip scrubs in the moment when I need that dead skin taken off of my lips. I think yeah. uh, if you use them more often than that, at least with my lips, it, it kind of makes it worse. I c- kind of just use them in the moment. And of course masks, I think a mask is a fancy term for a cream that's used in the same way that you would maybe use like a stick lip balm. It doesn't have any color in, but it does have some skincare goodies in it. I think the challenge with masks for me are If you were to wear one during the day and you're talking, you're drinking, you're licking your lips, even subconsciously you're doing these things, air is coming out across the lips, drying them out. Or maybe some of the product is, you know, you're eating some of the product or it's getting rubbed off. I think that's probably not a good use of money or a good use uh, for this mask. But uh, I actually like to use lip masks at nighttime. Uh, when I'm about to go to sleep, I actually sleep with my mouth closed. I, I think that's not normal because I, my husband says it's weird, but, um, <laughs> I <just> yeah. Like... <laughs> I have a little nose, so it's amazing. I can breathe <laughs> through it at night. But, um, I find that when I wake up, uh, my lips are not really, uh, dry or scraggly. Uh, so I use masks in that way. Whereas if I don't use it, maybe they're a little chapped and dried out, especially in the winter. So, I think lip scrubs and masks are good for in the moment, but I don't know that they have the ability to deliver actives long-term to provide any significant benefit for your lips.
1: And I just think the skin turns over so fast on your lips anyway that this kind of scrub or exfoliation effect you might get, it's not going to be long-lasting.
0: Yeah. I will say that for scrubs because... Uh, when you use them, some of the particles do go into the mouth. I would make sure to use scrubs that have a dissolving ingredient in them like salt or sugar. I found that when the scrubs have seeds in them, uh, they get in my mouth and they, uh, scratch at my teeth or I'll I'll move and I'll accidentally bite down and I'll be like, wait, did I just go to the beach or is that a walnut shell in my mouth? (laughs) Um, (laughs) so, Uh, and of course, uh, microplastics you wouldn't want to use uh, just because of the ingestion of course avoid anything with colorants uh you want to make sure they're really emollient and uh something that you would be okay with uh consuming since it does get in your mouth
1: it seems a bit like a gimmick product but if you like it and it's fun you know
0: (laughs) i like it in the moment i think they help um i mean can i also live without them sure sometimes when i'm in a pinch i actually just go to my kitchen cupboard and i take some sugar and i i uh Use a little bit of an oil that I have, and I just scrub my lips. And that's if, like, I have a ton of dead skin on my lips, and I'm trying to wear a lipstick or something like that, and I don't want to look like a crazy person. But God, um, it
1: must be so fun to be a woman.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, but
1: this has never occurred to me.
0: <laughs> Long term is an anti aging tactic. I think if you just keep uh, keep your lips hydrated, a lip balm should do. Um, I would agree. And, and you can yeah. save the money on the mask. You'll be okay.
1: Indeed. And, you know, they should sell uh, dental floss with these things if you can get little particles in your teeth.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't want to crack a tooth from my lip scrub. Man. <laughs>
1: exactly. All right, next question, huh? This one comes to us from Wade. Wade was the, looking for some help on some homework, <laughs> apparently. Wade was wondering if we could help with a paper he wanted to write on the impact of cosmetic use and the environment. He says, can you please help by providing info for contributing factors that identify cosmetics as an environmental health problem and the consequences that would arise if the problem is left unsolved or unresolved? Anything will help. Thank you so much.
0: All right. So I think we're going to talk about it from a Finnish perspective finished product perspective because Wade does say, hey, cosmetics, environmental health problem. And I think, you know, we often get these products at the store or delivered to our door and we think they're ready to go without thinking of environmental ramifications. But really in terms of environmental studies, cosmetics goes all the way back upstream to the raw material suppliers, which I think is where some of the environmental burden Um, can be. It's why some regulations are in place, particularly in New York with 140 oxide in this new law, but we're going to talk about it from a finished goods perspective.
1: Yeah, and that is a good point to bring up, though, too. When you see brands talking about how they're environmentally friendly and sustainable, um, they're usually talking about themselves, and they're not talking about upstream, like the upstream people that they work with. Now, in some cases, they are, but the it's very difficult to track the performance of your upstream suppliers and how they are within the environment. Uh, It's just, they don't keep track that well. But let's talk about cosmetics themselves and what kind of environmental impact that they have. Now, I'm a formulator, I'm a chemist, and I did take some environmental science, but I'm not an environmental scientist. And so this is just going off what I've read over the years. And I'm sure there are some environmental scientists out there who could set the record straight if we say anything incorrect. But from my vantage point, there's really five ways that the cosmetic products can impact the environment. Uh, First, there are the chemicals that can get into the waterways. Then there are supposed toxic chemicals and whether that's having an impact. Uh, There's microplastics, there's the air pollution that they can cause, and then there's some uh, notion about the plastic that goes into the landfill. So let's talk about these in turn here.
0: Well, in terms of chemicals getting into our waterways, of course, as I mentioned, that that most can mostly occur upstream. But of course, when we put products on our bodies or uh, use them in the shower and, and they get rinsed down the drain or we're in the sink in the bathroom, uh, those chemicals eventually do get in the waterways and they can't always get cleaned up. Of course, they're in very small quantities. You're not pumping drums of this. Uh, into the water, but some of these ingredients are able to biodegrade readily in the water and some are not.
1: Yeah, and that is the big challenge. There's not uh, a lot of environmental studies that follow all of the chemicals that come from your shampoo and then get into the waterways and, and where does that end up? Most of the stuff is going to be biodegradable, but like you say, some of it can start to build up in in, in the planet. Uh, yeah, so that's a reality so let's talk about the so that so the bottom line is there is some level of chemicals getting into the waterways i would say though if you compare the cosmetic industry to other industries about stuff getting into the waterways the paper manufacturers the automotive uh, paints and coatings
0: household cleaners
1: Right. There's a lot of industry and a lot of chemicals getting into the system. And the amount that cosmetics uh, contributes to that is relatively small compared to a lot of other industries. Although it's not nothing. So there is, you know, take that into consideration. The other notion is toxic chemicals. Are there toxic chemicals that are in your cosmetics that are getting into the environment? Now, if we talk about the level of these so called toxic ingredients in cosmetics, You know, it's not all of them are at a level that would be toxic. I mean, remember, there's the dose that makes the poison. So say if a thousand molecules of an ingredient might cause you harm, that's the level. If you get exposed to one molecule of that same ingredient, that's not going to be a problem. There's no harm there. So dose makes the poison. I mean, think of a little bit of water is fine. Too much water can actually kill you. Uh, Water in some levels is toxic at a certain level. So anyway, the the second point about toxic chemicals is that uh, these things get further diluted down when they go into your water system. Uh, so, as they say, the solution to pollution is dilution. Do we do we still say that?
0: <laughs> we do not still say that. Uh, that's what do, I was do not in say that. College. Although I, I have heard people say that, but that's that's not the forward way of thinking. But that has been something that has been said in the past.
1: And it it, it, is, it is true to some extent, but you don't want to have that attitude because at some point you can't dilute anymore.
0: Yeah. Captain Planet would disagree.
1: <laughs> there is also the microplastic problem. Uh, the, now, these have been considered a problem from cosmetics, uh, although there are other industries that produce much more microplastic pollutions than cosmetics.
0: Many more industries. Oh, gosh. <laughs> don't even right. get me started on this.
1: <laughs> right. I think we talked about microplastics in a previous show. I forget the number. Uh, But you can go back and listen to that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Nevertheless, the EU has banned microplastics in cosmetics. uh, And some of the states in the United States have done that also. So, you know, it's something that cosmetic companies have tried to get away with. I mean, get away from.
0: (laughs) And I'm sure some people try to get away with it. Who
1: knows? (laughs) They they probably do. Actually, I saw the microplastics issue. And for me, because I thought the microplastics just related to exfoliation products. And to me, the exfoliation that you get from a microplastic bead in your body wash is minimal. I just thought it was just a gimmick special effect. So I thought it it wouldn't be any problem to get rid of those things because they're not really having much impact. But I do see that they have expanded the definition of microplastics, and some people even consider carbomer, for example, a microplastic.
0: Yeah, they're still trying to iron out the global definition of what plastic means. I mean, plastic is a polymer, and so there are people saying, well, all polymers are plastics, and, and that's certainly not the case. So they're trying to figure out, okay, what chemistries in what combinations constitute a plastic particle? So we'll probably continue to see some legislation moving forward even further, more specifically in the European Union.
1: Yeah. The other place that cosmetics can impact on the environment is air pollution. Mm -hmm. I know in California they have set VOC limits. VOC stands for Volatile Organic Compounds. And that just regulates the amount that a formulator can put in the formula. Uh, So, And this is really why hairsprays aren't as good as they used to be. Because now they went from 80% VOCs down to 55% VOCs. And the way with a hairspray that you reduce your VOCs is essentially you add water to your formula. And as you might know, water in hairspray makes the hairspray not work well.
0: Yeah, and they're going to actually restrict it even further, Perry. That's really? the news on the docket. Oh. Yeah.
1: Oh, boy. Start hoarding... Uh cans of hairspray people
0: (laughs) at least (laughs) in the state of california yeah
1: (laughs) right (laughs) well the thing about that is that when california sets a regulation since california is such a large part a large market as a manufacturer if you're selling everywhere in the united states you want to make sure you comply with the california laws because if somebody ships something from nevada into california you could get sued uh, your company could get sued for all of the products that are on the shelves for sale in California. Yep. So co- cosmetics can have an impact on the air quality but you know it really these are disproportionately regulated if you ask me because uh, cars put way more VOCs into the atmosphere than hairspray but hairsprays are the ones that get more tightly regulated. <laughs> Although I'd say it's pretty common for the cosmetic industry to get treated like this where other industries get a pass. But the cosmetic industry, for some reason, seems to be one that can uh, that people just want to regulate. Now, perhaps the most significant impact of cosmetics on the environment is the packaging. Now, some companies are offering packaging-free options like solid shampoo bars, but I don't think these things will ever be more than niche products. They just don't work the same way as, you know, your squeeze bottle. And so I don't. I, I think that's an interesting solution at the moment, but I just don't think it's something that will take off beyond something you bring out while you're camping. <laughs> I don't know. Um, there is also the refillable containers. But here again, and maybe this is just my bias showing, but I just don't think... Uh, refillable containers are going to take off in a big way. I can't think of uh, any other area where they took off in a big way. You know, maybe they will. But, you know, when you're talking about plastic waste, the beverage industry makes much more of an impact than cosmetics. You know, think of it it this way. Like, I drink a 20-ounce plastic soda bottle, and it uses about the same amount of plastic as a shampoo bottle. But that shampoo bottle will take three weeks to a month to go through. And I finished like a 20-ounce bottle of pop in about 30 minutes. Yeah, and
0: multiple people could be sharing the shampoo bottle, by the way.
1: Exactly. And so there's just a lot more plastic waste uh, produced in, say, the beverage industry than there is in cosmetics. So there is that.
0: I like the idea of refillable containers. I I use glass containers at home, but I also make my own products and refill those containers. Uh, I don't know that everybody can do that. I I have that luxury and that skill set. I do know in Los Angeles, which is a rather large metropolitan area, there are places popping up where you can uh, bring your own container and they help you sterilize it and you add in your own shampoo or your lotion or whatnot. But it's not a new concept, first of all. It's been around for a long time. I think the timing is more right where people are having this conversation. But unless there is widespread availability and I'm going to be very honest, some financial incentive. I have a, a feeling it will be very hard for it be, to become the norm because people don't like to be inconvenienced. They, they, you know, once you get rid of the shampoo and the bottle goes in the recycling bin or the landfill or sometimes even the recycling bin and then that goes to the landfill, uh, it, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And unless people can really see the impact... Um, they're not going to go out of their way to refill their own containers. That would be a very small portion of the population.
1: Yeah, I just don't see this taking off on a large scale. You know, I hope it does, and maybe it, maybe it helps, but uh, I, I'm skeptical. Now, one of the claims that I saw that was that the small companies were the ones leading the way for pushing, the reducing the environmental impact. And while I, I believe that there's innovation going on at small companies, and they're often the ones... Uh, that a a small company will uh, experiment with something and a big company will see it and and like it and take it over. And and that's great. I don't really think the small companies are going to have much impact on this problem of the environment. You know, it's a bit like uh, the people who recycle everything, they walk to work, and they're very conscious about their own individual impact on the environment. The reality is that individual behaviors does not have a huge impact on the whole problem. What you really need to do is a system-wide change so that then people don't have to think about it and they can actually have an impact on the world. If if every individual is required to do uh, specific steps, we're never going to solve the problem of pollution in the environment. It has to be a system-wide thing. And that's why I think um, if you're going to make significant impacts on co- how cosmetics affect the environment, it's going to have to be these big companies that take actions. And they really are. Both Procter & Gamble, Unilever, uh, L'Oreal, uh, you know, they have significant sustainability programs, and uh, they're looking to reduce their carbon footprint. And we actually talked last week about P&G. They work with this organization called TerraCycle that uh, collects used cosmetic containers, and they recycle them.
0: Well, what can consumers do? Now, that is a
1: really good question. Yes. What can can we do about all this?
0: I I mentioned earlier, I make my own products. I have the skill set, the know-how, the luxury to have a lab in my home. But I don't think most people can do that. And at the end of the day, without proper knowledge, uh, it's not such a great idea. The types of products people can make in their kitchen are likely not going to be as good as ones perhaps made in a lab, like my home lab. Now, you can buy ingredients from home craft suppliers, but uh, at the end of the day, by the time you get all these ingredients, get them shipped to you, get them stored, throw the, all the shipping trash away, and then make stuff, and then put stuff down the sink, yeah. uh, it might not be much better for the environment than just buying maybe a larger size of a finished product as opposed to small bottles, like get a gallon of body wash instead of uh, you know an 8-ounce plastic bottle or whatever.
1: If you add up, though, the impact of that, like all the shipping around and all the repackaging and all the stuff that goes into getting those raw materials as a hobbyist, and you might as well just go into the store and bought the finished product. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but it is fun. So if you're looking for a relaxing hobby, it is It is a lot of fun. Absolutely,
1: Um, absolutely, it's fun. Of
0: course, look for companies with a large level of transparency, companies that advertise these sustainability programs that they're involved with. And for me, it's not just good enough that a company says they have sustainability goals. They really should be putting out these annual reports that show you, the person buying their brand, or maybe you're the shareholder, typically shareholder reports of the companies publicly traded, uh, to say, hey, this was our goal, and here's where we're at. We see a lot of press releases where this company is pledging to do this by 2023, and you know what, maybe you forget, maybe they don't really do it. Check to make sure they have an annual shareholder report. I uh, am a Chobani fan, Chobani yogurt. Chobani, if you're listening, I have oh. tried every single one of your products. I have a list <laughs> going back to the beginning of time. Oh, but boy. anyway... Uh, They put out a really fantastic annual report that really just talks about their sustainability and how they're doing. And it's not always perfect, but here's what they're going to do next year. So look for companies that not only have a transparent sustainability program, but annual reports. And remember, just because a company says they're environmentally friendly doesn't automatically mean they are. Sometimes they have good intentions and they just don't know any better. Or some companies might just be evil and they just want to get you to try (laughs) buy more of a product i mean
1: not evil they're just it's capitalism and the whole <laughs> i mean the, the whole system is about to get you to buy more and more and more right <laughs> which so, is sort
0: of the opposite of environmental stewardship right
1: exactly i but you could understand they like, uh a cosmetic company whose whole aim of business was to get you to not buy their product wouldn't be in business very long.
0: (laughs) But it would be a really moral high ground, right?
1: (laughs) Well, they would certainly be environmentally friendly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, our last question today is from Ravi on Instagram again. What are the differences between the mechanism of charcoal and bentonite when they work on your face in cosmetic products? So we see a lot of clay masks out there. Those aren't aren't new. I was using Queen Helene's as a kid uh, with all the clay in there from the pharmacy, the bottom shelf of the pharmacy, but nonetheless at the pharmacy. And of course, activated charcoal being all the rage now. So activated charcoal is also called activated carbon, and it's a highly absorbent powder that's typically made by heating and charring wood or coconut or bamboo or peat, basically some biosource and then it's activated or carbonized with either hot oxidizing gases or steam, or it's treated with an acid like phosphoric acid, which helps reduce the pore size of the product when it's ground up. The result is a highly porous powder that likes to absorb oils and other compounds with affinitive chemistry. Activated charcoal is immensely used orally to absorb poisons, drugs, other chemicals that the person had unintended exposure to or too much exposure to, although not alcohol poisoning, I found out from one study, uh, but typically activated charcoal is taken orally. There are few studies in cosmetics, and by few, I mean I really couldn't find any, where it studied Ah. topical impact, but of course, raw material suppliers, the people selling activated charcoal purport that it not only absorbs oils, but pollution particulate and other toxins, which... Could make sense. It's a porous material. You're leaving it on a surface and it's going to absorb uh, items from the surface. Makes total sense.
1: Well, charcoal was the big hot item a couple of years ago, if I recall. <laughs> now it's CBD, but charcoal was the one before that, if I remember.
0: Charcoal is still hot. So is it? What huh? people forget about charcoal is that it's not this intelligent carbon-based item where it's like, I only absorb the bad stuff. <laughs> it absorbs everything so a lot of people take this activated charcoal who don't really need it and don't forget like it's absorbing the good stuff in addition to the bad stuff so be be very careful don't take activated charcoal unless you absolutely have a medical need to
1: right so all those vitamins from that fruit that you were eating gets absorbed by the charcoal and then flushed away right?
0: exactly and who knows what else in your body so just be very careful it's not an intelligent molecule The other uh, compound that was asked about is bentonite. That is a tri-layer smectite clay mineral from the earth. Nevada is one of the biggest suppliers of bentonite in the United States. who knew? Mined right out of the ground. It has a platelet shape, and it actually is not this inert platelet. It has a really active chemistry on the surface because the flat part of the platelet is negatively charged, and the sides, like the edge, are Mm -hmm. positively charged. So this polarity has to... Uh, helps give it its active activity. So ah. similar to charcoal and its ability to absorb heavy metals and oils, it also works as a thickening or suspending agent in cosmetic products because of those, those charge sides. Actually, when you apply a lot of shear to it, a lot of mixing power,
1: yeah. it causes
0: the platelets to spin really rapidly. And those charges orient themselves opposite to each other, and it actually provides a house of cards network. So if you think of a house of cards, each playing card is a platelet, and they stack each other up and support this whole house. That's how bentonite works. So in addition to having these absorbing properties on the skin of oils and stuff like that, it's actually a functional ingredient, whereas activated charcoal uh, doesn't do that. It just pretty much settles in a product unless you have a suspending agent in there.
1: The clays are also very good at absorbing microorganisms. So they're really hard to preserve.
0: (laughs) Yes. I told you they're not smart. Uh, so, but the, I mentioned this tri layer, each layer has a different um, chemical composition from the earth and they're typically earth metals. Uh, hence the name in the periodic table of that column, sodium, magnesium, um, even aluminum can be one of the metals, uh, in these plates. And it's, they're not uh, freely bound per se, although they can, uh, deposit on the skin. So I couldn't really find any literature that compared the uh, two of them together. I I could find some absorption capacity of certain oils with charcoal, not much else. Uh, But in general, you typically use more bentonite in a formulation than you would charcoal. So I would imagine because you have more bentonite, you're probably getting more absorption capacity. And again, I didn't find any studies about the charcoal um, on skin just tons of articles about ingestion, but there are some studies done with bentonite about sebum reduction and removal of certain elements from the skin like iron while adding beneficial trace minerals like magnesium and silica to the skin.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting technology and it has some functionality. Uh, The charcoal is kind of a new one. I haven't really worked with it that much, but it seems a a bit more marketing hype than uh, actual functionality, at least on the skin.
0: At least on the skin, yeah. But if you're poisoned, I definitely would recommend taking it.
1: Okay, so you bring little charcoal <laughs> tablets when you're out hiking and you get a snake bite?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I but uh, also, people um, activated charcoal is really useful in toothpaste. I, I forgot to mention. I, I did find some stuff there. Not that's not really sexy with the skin and stuff, but they do put it in toothpaste as an abrasive um, and to help uh, with the tartar and stuff like that.
1: So it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't stain your teeth black then.
0: Uh, it does temporarily. I, um, oh. I don't know if you've seen. There's this uh, activated charcoal toothpaste. It's pretty funny.
1: <laughs> I have not. I, actually, I have. Uh, my front four teeth are actually fake. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I knocked them out when I was a youth.
0: So you wouldn't uh, be very... worried about the walnut scrubs and the uh, <laughs> walnut particles and the lip scrubs uh, and... in.
1: Exactly, I would. Uh, they would get behind my plastic teeth or something. Oh. <laughs> why i don't wear use those uh skit of uh, those teeth lightening things because they don't affect the plastic the same way as my teeth
0: oh that's so funny well ravi thanks so much for the question it's a good question uh hopefully that aids you in your work i want to thank everyone today for listening if you get a chance go over to itunes and leave us a review that will help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer
1: you know next time we should uh read some of those uh, itunes reviews maybe uh See what people are saying about the show.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Five stars. Unless
1: unless they're saying bad stuff about it. We won't read any of them.
0: Well, we could read that too. It might be a good Uh, laugh.
1: Exactly. And we'll just blame it on Randy. (laughs) Also, you can follow us on our various social media accounts. We have an Instagram account at thebeautybrains2018. Valerie's doing a great job with that. Uh, On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains. And we have a Facebook page also where we take questions there and the beauty brains are on patreon if you want to support the show patreon is the best way to do that this helps keep the show ad free and is the best way to keep the financial bias out of what we have to say about products on the show so if you like what we do and you want to see us keep doing it go to patreon slash the beauty brains and subscribe
0: thanks again for listening everyone and remember be brainy about your beauty thanks everybody Kittens!